0: Hello, everyone. I'm Frank Garz with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is, does Lean Startup work in politics? And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company CEO and co-founder, Heather McGough. Our guests are Agile, Lean, and Teal Managing Consultant, Pete Oliver Krueger, and Agile Specialist, Jim D'Amato. And with that, I'll hand things off to Heather.
1: Welcome, everyone. So I met Pete years ago in Washington, DC, and we've since kept in touch. During a recent exchange, we were fired up about the state of politics today, which led to a brief discussion about the need to apply lean startup to politics. So I invited Pete to do a webcast with me, and he asked if his friend Jim could join. So we hope that this webcast will inspire you to apply Lean Startup to politics. And if you have an idea that you think could change the country, we invite you to put it to the test because if it doesn't work out, we want you to move fast to your next idea because it, or the one after that, could indeed change the country. So with that, I wanna go ahead and have Pete and Jim Introduce themselves. So, welcome, guys. Pete, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Thanks, Heather. Uh, yeah, my name is Pete. Uh, last name is Oliver Krueger. It's uh, really long, so people just often call me Pete. Okay, um, but uh, I do a lot of work with lean startup and coaching, not only startups uh, but also large enterprise organizations. Um, like uh, one of my customers, like USA Today. Um, and really looking at you know how can you take these principles and apply them in any kind of context. Uh, I've also done this work with a church, um, as well as um, the startups you know, that come through the DC Lean Startup Circle, where I'm one of the co-organizers. Uh, and these things are really applicable in a lot of different places and a lot of different areas. It's just kind of generally about reaching out and trying out new ideas. Um, so when I, get passionate about, you know, sort of the politics side of things. Um, I pull these techniques out as well, and I try these things. And one of the things that I did uh, in that space was working with uh, my friend, Jim D'Amato, on his uh, project, which is called Truthiness Check. Uh, And so we took Lean Startup and applied it to fact checking uh, during the 2016 election uh, between Donald Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, You want to say a little more, Jim?
2: Yeah, hi, Jim D'Amato here. Uh, I am an Agile specialist that lives and works in Washington, D.C. Uh, On on the professional side, I've applied Agile at scale in a lot of different industries, oil and gas, mining, aviation, biotech, beverage, uh, inside and outside of IT. It's pretty much the thing that I do. Uh, For a while on side, I had a startup called Truthiness Check and It was an attempt at uh, taking the misinformation out of politics by crowdsourcing political fact-checking. It was a great idea at the time, and as time went on, it it proved to not necessarily be such a great idea. Looking back on it, I wish I had learned about Lean Startup a lot sooner, because I might have figured out the right way to pivot a lot sooner.
1: Well, this is really helpful. Not everyone is open to talking about their missteps. In fact, there used to be a conference here in San Francisco called FailCon. And uh, there were some founders who were open to getting on stage and, and talking about this. So, so we really appreciate you being with us, Jim. So let's back up just a little bit. And I'd like to have each of you just mention how you first learned about Lean Startup, this, this methodology, this framework.
0: Sure, I, I can take the first run here. So uh, I found out about it because uh, I had my own startup. Um, I was building software for quite a while, and uh, had this idea that uh, execution, knowing how to build really great software, meant that I could go out and like resell this software. Um, I'm not going to tell the whole like backstory of, of my startup. Um, but uh, it needs to say, it was not doing very well. And when I went out to sort of seek out you know, some advice, somebody turned me on to Lean Startup and Eric Ries's book. Um, and he was actually coming around and doing a tour in DC um, for, with the DC Lean Startup Circle. And so I met Kevin DeWalt there, uh, and uh, he was the first person to sort of introduce me to what this Lean Startup stuff is. Uh, I did the Lean, uh, Lean Startup Machine workshop um, ran my startup through that. Uh, had some great work, uh, great learning coming from that, uh, working with Trevor's organization there. and uh, basically went out and, uh, you know found the person that told me what I needed to know to understand, what I needed to change in order to do that. And then I actually turned my software company into a consulting company. And then that consulting company led me to where I am right now, which is consulting with lean startup to larger enterprise organizations. So uh, it was ultimately a success story, but it was a lot of failure getting there.
1: Yeah. And Jim, if you could briefly mention, you know, where you heard about lean startup for the first time? And then I really want to dig into what attracted you to the idea behind truthiness check
2: yeah thanks. So uh, I had, through all of my agile expertise, build a built a product that I thought was enormously on target for exactly what I had in my mind. And when I released it into the market, it did a, it, it did a big old flop. I got absolutely no traction. I don't remember quite what Google searches I used or who I talked to, but the the short story is is I ended up at a weekend. A boot camp called Lean Startup Machine back in 2014. It was where I met Pete <clears throat> at a at a cocktail party after the, the weekend was over. Pete and I talked, why are you here? Well, I'm doing this and that sounds like an interesting idea. Uh, we didn't work together really quite uh, right away. Uh, well, a little bit. He did a little consulting for me. Uh, we stayed in touch and then he got back involved again and um, you know we we did a lot of pivoting and persevering and trying to figure out what the right fit was until we both kind of went, mm, "It's time to go do something else." Mm-hmm.
1: So, why do we need? Why did you think we needed truthiness check at the time? Again, because we're taking it way back to you know before Trump was even a, a twinkle in our eye. It's way back to mm-hmm. you know 2016 or before.
2: You know, I've read a lot in the Washington Post and, and other uh, other political sections of newspapers, and the, the fact-checking craze was just sort of coming into being. Uh, you know, with factcheck.org and Snopes and PolitiFact, and the Washington Post had a fact-checker of their own. And I remember thinking to myself that all these organizations were essentially hampered by the, 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 the scale at which they could deliver. Uh, the resources that they had. And I thought to myself, oh gosh, what if you can sort of make the Wikipedia fact checking? I started studying, uh, I learned about something called argumentation, which is the study of how argument works. And I thought, hey, this could be the answer. So I started, started going along with it. Um, everybody I talked to thought that it was going to be a great idea. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I fed on that. and built something that I thought was exactly perfect for it, got no traction.
1: And so, so then, you know, what was the hypothesis for TC, we'll call it?
2: Sure. So early on, uh, I didn't have one. Uh, It was that if I was to sort of uh, reverse engineer, it was that I, I thought the world needed some of this stuff. The world, um, that the that the existing fact check organizations were sort of insufficient and limited, and you know this was back in the Obama era uh, before before the uh, the current o- uh, occupant in the White House started uh, taking so many liberties and I, and I don't say that negatively um, you know to, regardless of what side of the aisle that you're on um, when Pete and I started working together again the the first hypothesis was can we get any traction with this? And we went through a bunch of iterations. We dumped the custom system that I had uh, (laughs) spent years and and a lot of money uh, trying to build and stripped it down to something that was much more of a concierge style. Uh, It it was a hard mental transition at first and uh, I realized that we were able to be a lot more flexible, that we were able to shift a lot faster and I didn't have to get something programmed to go and get feedback on it. Um, you know, that was the big friction point to making, making progress, making updates. Um, we actually just stopped and leveraged the blog. And we were able to put some things together and go so we'd get traction. And we did to some degree, but we found that there was then another problem. The problem that people had inherent biases that they couldn't overcome. Um, and so then we set out with another hypothesis that could we get people who didn't agree with what they were reading to set their biases aside? And the thing that we sort of settled on was no, we couldn't. And it was at that point where uh, you know we had, we sort of had to have the realistic conversation with ourselves and say let's go do something else.
1: So. We're thinking about applying Lean Startup to the process. You know, what was the MVP that that you did build? And did it sounds like things didn't go perfectly. Tell, tell me more about that.
2: Yeah, the first MVP was a custom system that I, I built for myself just to see if I could get the data model to work. I said, OK, well, this, this looks good. Let me see if I can flush it out some more and put some more features in it. Um, <clears throat> And I was really excited about it. I was building it myself. I I ended up getting a a gentleman I found on uh, on Upwork, uh, a guy named Pencash uh, out in India. He and I had a great relationship. We we worked well together. Uh, He was building exactly what I had in my mind. And I kept adding more features and more features and more features because I wanted it to be engaging when I released it onto the world. Upon which time when I released it onto the world, like I, like I said, it, it got zero traction. So, what
1: were some of those features that you built?
2: Uh, the, the most, the one that I looked back on and thought that this was truly frivolous was the ability to, uh, to sort based on some sort of a voting characteristic. I was just completely gold plating uh, because, you know, I wanted it to be engaging. Everything that seems to come out seems to be so feature rich. I didn't want to miss that window. Uh, But again, I I hadn't tested the the basic assumptions. I I just had a gut feeling. When I I moved forward and and restarted, you know, working with Pete, we stripped it down and and it was about putting the fact checks in by hand, which was really great. It was a lot more liberating to not have this system that you built constraining you. And, you know, that was sort of one of those fundamental shifts in my mind of be able to adjust and pivot as you need without it suddenly being a software event.
1: Mm -hmm. So, Pete, tell us a little bit more about that, that stripping it down. And and if you can be as specific as possible, too. I learned best by example.
0: Sure. Yeah. And what he had was a, it was kind of like a, debate engine, a chance to throw up different ideas on both sides, to be able to do some research, you know, pull back some ideas um, and, you know, basically hash something out online. Um, that sort of inspired me and grabbed me a little bit because I had been playing with some ideas of an alternative for Wikipedia um, because, like, one of my biggest frustrations is that you put up an article and then somebody can come by the day after and completely erase all your stuff and put something else up, you know, completely different. And there's no debate, there's no talk, there's no discussion on it. Um, and I felt like that was kind of the core of the problem that we were tackling uh, in the debate process. You know, people would just throw up this argument with no discussion about the validity of the argument. Um, and so Jim's platform gave sort of these ideas and these approaches of you know how we could do some of this debate. Like he said, he did like a bunch of study on argumentation and all these different aspects of stuff. Um, so you know, it had like that promise you know to that. But of course, that doesn't mean that it's gonna translate into actual discussion. And going to pan out the way that you think it's going to. So, when we put it out there, and it's like, all right, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take your uh, interface that you built and put it in front of users and have people use it um, and have them click through it and see how they do on things. And I want you to measure their emotional reaction. Um, it's one thing I always drive when I'm coaching on Lean startup is uh, going back to Simon Sinek's start with why, and he talks and gives a great introduction as into. You know, why emotions are great leading indicators as to whether or not people will engage with a solution. Um, so I had him go through and sort of, you know, mark, you know, what was that emotional reaction that people had as they were using your system? And uh, he came back and said, unfortunately, like people just aren't, you know, they're just not excited or, you know, and so and it was kind of translating into what was going on. So we kind of looked at, you know, what were all those pieces? And we started looking at the technology part of it first. You know, is there something that we could change? Should we change this inter- this, this uh, interface piece? You know, is it too many pieces? Should we simplify it? Um, and that was sort of our idea of like paring down because uh, he didn't really have like an MVP um, uh, to begin with. He had went gone way 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 past uh, sort of the idea of MVP. So I was like, all right, well let's bring this back down. So the next thing that we build, we want to build with as little effort as possible. Um, so we went I went all the way back to you know the basics of the training and said, all right, so what's our riskiest assumption? that if this can't happen, um, then the whole model falls apart. And it really was what well, we need to, the whole point of this is to get people to change their minds. That's why people want to go get fact checks because they have their their brother, their uncle, um, you know, their uh, their friend who holds a different opinion. And they're like, if only I could get the right information and tell them what they have wrong with the way that they're thinking about the world, then I can get them to see my point of view. And then you know, then I'll have them you know, over on our side and we can start to build up a momentum. And that's like the, the thought process that goes through everybody's head. And as we went out and talked to people and did some our interviews, we had a lot of that. We, we started with that theory and that was confirmed. But that's the way people are really kind of thinking about this. We want to be able to convince somebody in our friends or family circle that they just have all the wrong information and that if they could just see my side of the, of the argument, that they would switch. Right. So
1: I'm going to lie. This sounds a little academic to me. You're talking about using emotions as leading indicators. At a certain point you had to talk to customers. So like when it was time to go out, know into the world and talk to some folks like what did you approach them with who were they where were they and what did you you know what did you learn because you you did mention confirmation bias earlier i want to dig into a little bit more around these conversations you had with people
0: yeah so we set up a couple sessions with like i think we did some by phone uh or like zoom conference like this with screen sharing so we could put up like sort of an interface and um, have them look at stuff. Uh, as we started paring that down and, and really just getting to um the idea of could we change somebody's minds, uh, we went and sat in some coffee shops. Um, you know, we grabbed, you know, people that we knew uh that were from you know the other side of the aisle or maybe the same side of the aisle um, and uh, you know brought some different formats to them. And they were like, all right, so if you looked at this fact check that had these details here then you know would that change your mind um so for example we had a couple formats that we did so first just laid out we just typed up on a word document a fact check about i think it was hillary's emails was one of the early ones uh and there was a lot of debate going back and forth about whether or not she should be going to prison for this or not going to prison for this uh and so one of the first things we tried was we laid out the logic it's like all right so for her to go to prison these certain things had to happen i don't remember all of them exactly but like she had to um, have known that the content that she was sharing on email uh, was classified information and then knowingly shared it to somebody else uh, and, you know, and have that information get out to somebody that was outside um, you know, that sort of sphere to, to, for it to be legal and for her to be put into jail. Um, and so we went through and we basically laid out that argument and we were able to convince a bunch of people that, okay, well, all right, so she's not legally liable but she still was completely negligent, and that's why I don't want her as my as my candidate for president. Or that's why I don't want her as president. And we realized that like each time we like knocked down one issue, there's another issue behind it, and there's another issue behind it. And so then we started like collecting those things, and we had to keep iterating over our fact checks. So it was like, all right, so here's the legal argument about you know, should she go to jail or not? All right, here's the next argument here about whether or not she's a responsible person that could run the country. Um, you know, and here's a comparison, you know, against the other candidates against Donald Trump, you know, as far as it seems like they've done the same things. And here's the evidence back and forth. Uh, And no matter what we put in front of people, if people already liked Donald Trump, they took each one of the arguments and knocked them down. And if they really liked Hillary, Hillary, then they're like, Oh, I completely agree. Oh, this is fantastic. I love this fact check. And we started noticing this pattern that if you agreed with it, then you really loved what we were doing. And you wanted to grab it and you wanted to share it out to all of your friends. But if you didn't agree with it, you found every reason in the book to cut it down. You didn't trust the source Oh, that paper has bias, you know, or, well, well what about this thing? Or I have this other source, this alternative source um, that tells me something different. And we're like, oh, what's that source? Well, I can't remember what it is right now, but I'm sure it's true, you know, and like everything they would just pop up there and just give you this list uh, of reasons. And we started realizing that the confirmation bias, you know, this bringing in up my idea and then reading it to see if it agrees or disagrees <clears throat> if it disagrees, uh, was really driving everything. And since the goal of the, our riskiest hypothesis is could we change somebody's mind about their vote in the election, we just, like, time after time and again, we couldn't.
2: Yeah, uh, to just touch on that a little bit more, I think the, the thing I realized was <clears throat> that fact-checking is nothing more than just another voice in the echo chamber. And so if you agree with it, you're going to listen to it. And if you don't agree with it, you're going to discount it. And it, and it worked on both sides because there were, uh, there were things that I did where I talked to conservatives about some of their ideas, and they absolutely agreed. And, of course, the flip is the liberals would, would not agree. Um, so the confirmation bias is real. And, um, you know, the, today's fact-checking really is, is just another voice in the echo chamber.
1: Mm-hmm. So, feel free to tell me more about experiments and how you discovered the biases, um, you know, the MVP. And also, did you find the best formats for fact checks? Um, I wanna get into that. And then, and also any fundamental flaws you couldn't get past before we, we move on.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's one. Uh, we did find the format that kind of worked the best. And came the closest, um, and we called that the Vox format. So one of the things we found out was that the idea of listing, you know, paragraph form of like this description about all these things, and, and or doing excerpts from the, uh, the the sources themselves or from the newspaper articles, people just their their eyes just glossed over, and they just they couldn't sustain any of that kind of stuff. But if you took here is like point number one. Um, and then here is one source that tells you this, that was, you know, like, let me come back to a different format we did later, and it was like, all right, here's another point, and here's a source that tells me this, and here's another point, and here's a source that tells me this. Um, what we found out was that people would find an excuse about each one of those sources, and they would tell us, you know, these are the sources I trust, and these are the sources I don't trust. So then we got smarter after that. We're like, all right, so we take each one of these things, and we're gonna find multiple sources for each one, and we're gonna you know, pull from both sides of the aisle, as far as these sources, and collect this information, where are all these different pieces coming from? And you know, so each side could look at it and see a source that they trusted from each side. Uh, and then we outlayed that, and, we've, and then we layered one other piece on top of that, because that still wasn't quite enough you know, when it came to some issues like the legality part. Um, and so Jim was suggesting, he was like, well, what if we pull in some of this argumentation stuff? And I was like, well, let's give it a try and see if we can do argumentation in a very simple form. So we found that there were basically three types of of arguments. Uh, One's called parallel, another one's called serial, and the the third is called convergent. And these kind of hold up in the legal sense for this as well. So a parallel means that if any one of these things is true, then the whole thing is true. Um, A serial says that if A has to be true, and then B has to be true and then C has to be true in order for the whole thing to be true. And if any one of those is not true, the whole argument falls down. And the last one was convergent, was this idea that all of these, three, these things have to be true together. So if any one of these things is not true, then the whole thing falls apart. Um, and so we started laying out and, and gave a little bit of education at the top and said, so this fact check is a convergent argument or this fact check is a parallel argument. So here's point one. And since this is in parallel, then that means any one of these things could be true to make this a true argument. And here's the sources, and we see that this one is true according to source number one, false according to source number two, and true according to source number three. And so we kind of gave it like a rough score of like it's 66% true. Um, and it sort of you know started bringing in some metrics and some ideas of how can we measure amongst all the different sources. Um, and that started giving people, it, it kind of knocked people out of their emotional brain and into their neocortex thinking brain, um, which really just, you know, got them to open up the door to thinking differently. And that was the thing that we needed to accomplish. That was what was most important. Yeah. Um, and so we were kind of happy that we kind of found this format that works really good to convince other people to do that. But it takes knowledge and it takes um, experience and understanding of how to write in this format. In order to get it done. So we tried our second uh, validation, which was could we find people who would be willing to put in the time to write this format of fact checks. And that's where the second one completely fell down. Because people were not interested in writing any fact checks about something that they didn't already believe. Um, And even if they did believe it, they wanted to get an article and share it. They didn't want to go out and do the research and collect all this information because that took way too much time. And they were in the middle of an argument with somebody else and that wasn't worth their time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we you know, sort of validated the problem and we figured out what that was and we came up with a good solution. But then in order to get it to scale, we had to make sure that we could have multiple people who would be willing to execute on that solution deliver it. And that's really where the model itself um, for choosing this check fell apart. Um, and so we just couldn't like execute on that. At the end, there just weren't enough people, um, showing up at the door to make it happen.
1: Jim. Yeah. TC doesn't exist right now, or it's some, somewhere out here, maybe in a a spin on the idea. Um, there's a reason it doesn't exist. So, so tell me more about that, the state of it now. And most importantly, what would you do differently next time we think about applying lean startup to this process? What did you learn and what would you do differently?
2: Yeah, so it's uh, a, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, I've I've had trouble shutting down the the actual email, right? Because there's something about putting the the final nail in a coffin that sort of tugs at your heartstrings. But uh, you know, my my window on on doing this personally closed. Uh, wife and I had a baby. We've you know potentially got another one coming on the way, and um, the amount of work that it takes to put into a startup to get it moving. Uh, is just not something I can do right now. <clears throat> um, what, what was, the, you sort of had a compound question there. Give them to what me would you the do
1: differently next time?
2: What would I do differently next time? I certainly would have found Lean Startups sooner. You know, there is certainly a difference between the ability to deliver a product well and the, the understanding that you're doing the, the, right, the right thing um doing the, doing the right thing and doing the thing right maybe is is sort of the the balance there i wish i had found lean startup a lot sooner and wouldn't have wouldn't have spent a lot of time early on um feeling really great had a lot of energy uh built exactly what i wanted what exactly what i saw in my mind um it just it didn't fit you know here's an example one of the the first prototypes that I built was was web based for um, what you would use on on your workstation and I showed it to a, a UX specialist and he's like, "I completely see what you're trying to do here, but if I can't do it do it with my thumb, I'm not going to do it." Mm-hmm. And I remember just being like, "Oh, mobile first and then of course, you've got to go through the the mental churn of trying to rearrange everything that you've got in your head and put more prototypes together. You know, everybody seemed to really love the idea. Everybody I talked to said, the world needs this. Looking back on it, was I asking leading questions? Would people be nice to me? You know, everybody wants to say something nice and t- instead of telling you, hey, you know, your baby's ugly. <laughs> Sorry to be the one to break the news. Um, I don't know. You know, I would have found Lean Startup sooner, and, and I would have certainly had less, less costly uh, experiments and gotten to decision points sooner.
1: Pete, anything to add to that?
0: Um, I think, like, I always start, try to nail it down to there's three steps to creating any startup or new idea or anything like that. You have to have a problem that emotionally uh, is activating for people, or else they won't leave the thing that they're currently doing. Then you have to create a solution that also gets them emotionally activated um, so that they are inspired to come to you instead of just leaving what they're doing before and going someplace else. And then you also have to have the ability to to do it at scale. And you have to sort of hit each of those three things. And so he was really focusing on how do we do this at scale with his original idea. um, And I was like, we need to dial this back to the first step. We have to validate that we have a definitive problem that gets people activated. And we said, yes, we do. Fantastic. We have to validate that we can, you know, do the solution. Yes, we do. We've got one, you know, took multiple iterations, multiple different chances um, of trying things out until we found the right one that worked. Um, and that was great. But then we fell apart when it came down to the scaling side of things. Um, so the faster you can go through testing each of those three things, the more chances you have to keep going back and go going back until you run out of time or money. Yeah
2: yeah we uh, we had put certain metric ideas into place for how we were trying to measure this. Um, how many page views did we get? How many shares on Twitter or Facebook did we get? Um, how many people signed up? How many people contributed you know something substantive you know in a comments section we We, we had low engagement
1: so I want to move on now to what's next for politics? You know, part of what we said at the beginning was we want to make sure there's some inspiration here. And and just to reflect upon the magnitude of this, I mean, you think back in the 20th century, our nation faced a a single adversary, right? It was the Soviet Union. And in the 21st century, you know, it's China, it's Russia, North Korea, we've got ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And, you know, the old approach to doing things isn't working anymore, necessarily. We're, we're talking about hacked elections at this point. You know, one of our clients here at Lean Startup Company, our, um, our various intelligence agencies. So I'd like to ask you, you know, if fact-checking doesn't work because of this thing called confirmation bias, then what? And what's next for politics?
0: Yeah, um, here's the funny thing that we also learned in the 2016 election. The thing that's next for politics, like in my opinion, is a thing that is already happening and it actually already is lean startup. So we've got actually negative stories right now about, um, so if you go to, if you Google like politics and lean startup, about the only story that will be pulled up will be, I think it was a Harvard Business Review article, which talks about how Jared Kushner was using lean startup principles to work with uh, Cambridge Analytica to collect information about customers, voters, through Facebook. So then they could then create profiles of ads that they could run to then convince voters that they were voting for the wrong person or that they shouldn't vote for Hillary. Um, And it's like this negative example to show that it, it, well, I guess depending on who you who you uh, wanted to win the election, um, but I you know still think it's very negative because it allowed for disseminating a lot of misinformation. You know, it worked for their campaign. It worked for what was what was working on it, and like so that's the thing that sometimes people get stuck on. Especially if I tell the story, they're like, "Oh, we should stay away from lean startup because lean startup is only good for you know manipulating people." They're like, no, 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 oh no, that's not the lesson to be taken from this. lean startup what you need to take away is lean startup works you can do the exact same techniques for stuff that is driving the environment you can do the exact same techniques for medicare for all you know if those are the things that you're passionate about the the it really comes down to understanding the your customers understanding you know voters in this case and you know being listening to them is really what it comes down to go out, talk to people, listen to them about what they care about, not only what they're willing to talk about, but what they get really passionate and emotional about, um, and then have put forward some solution that gets them to take action. That's, that's like the core of what Lean Startup is. And that's what we want our politics, you know, people to do in politics as well. And the only person I've heard of on the other side of doing this was actually um, the niece of Kamala Harris, was at the Lean Startup Conference uh, from two years ago in 2017, and she was talking about how she was taking some of these techniques and uh, helping, uh, um, you know, her aunt uh, to run to do some campaigning stuff. And then Kamala Harris won, um, or Harris won the Senate, her Senate election. So, you know, yeah. it could be used, you know, in either side of the aisle. Um, it's just a great way to convince people to change their minds. Mm-hmm.
2: I'll uh, I'll add something on to that that I, I think. Every politician in the right mind goes out and tries to listen to people. Uh, But the feedback loop of whether what you're listening to and then translating into a message, whether that message then has a differing impact and putting that into some sort of, of, um, of a number to see if something's going up and going down to get that faster feedback cycle, I, I think is where uh, Mr. Kushner was sort of on point in what he was doing for the Trump campaign. And quite frankly, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. He was able to figure out and target the message to see what worked. Um, and all he had to do was leverage a little bit of Facebook. You know, the everybody who's read The Lean Startup by Eric Ries knows the famous, famous example of we, we spent $5 a day on Google AdWords to see how many clicks we got. And that's basically what he did. Oh sure, they spent a lot of money with Cambridge Analytica and you know, got a bunch of data to figure out what profiles there were. But gosh, you put a survey out and you see what people answer. <laughs> you have some sort of feedback to update the message and you go back out and you, you speak the message again at some sort of a mega rally and you see what kind of response there is on on Facebook, and it has all sorts of searching and analysis tools. I mean, it it was brilliant.
1: So, I'm hearing politics should be a conversation, not here's the answer, which is what fact checking is, as you guys found, but people aren't logical. So, So what do we do?
0: Science. That's sort of my short answer in a lot of this category. Um, And it frustrates me a little bit when I'm talking with Democrats because they're really pushing They're like we need more science in the process of running the government of um, You know of elections and all this kind of stuff and I'm like the science is out there and the Republicans are the one using it Mm -hmm. It's the science of psychology (laughs) we're getting so focused on you know environmental science, you know and and you know the science of technology and these other parts of things but there's a whole other field of you know basically dealing with you know the mind um, uh, my favorite is the, the, the side that's the positive psychology side uh, there's a whole movement of, around positive psychology and how do we get people to improve um, and you know find and achieve happiness uh, people are really started uh, studying that right now and it's really growing and if we took some of those ideas and some of those principles uh, and introduce them into the government space, we could change the way we do um, debates. We could change the way that we run um, you know, sort of the creation of laws. Um, I do a lot of work with my teams um, in the Agile space of debates and discussions. And one of the core things that I learned from a guy named Chris Voss, uh, who was the head negotiator for the FBI, was the first thing that you have to do is to validate people. Uh, I like to say that Chris Voss is the re- reason why if you've ever heard the phrase we we do not negotiate with terrorists he's the reason why that is no longer the policy of the united states because the thing that he found out was not negotiating was the sure and way to make sure that the worst possible outcome happened but there's a difference between negotiating and giving the other person everything that they ask for you have to listen you have to talk you have to understand and there's so many techniques that are being tested out there you know in a scientific study that show with you know the peer review that these things work better than others that we could meld into our town halls that we could meld into our legal stuff and we can't do it at the federal level we could do it at the state level we could do it at the city level you could do it in your own town you know if you know you've got a mayorship or you know um, you know, in your county government, uh, there's so many different places and possibilities that we can change the way the dialogue is done if we look at the psychology or the science of psychology. So I would say, if you want to be, if you want to bring science, you know, into politics, bring science into politics, and lean startup is one of the best ways, you know, to do that as a political science and not like this political, you know, um, Rove kind of science of how do you convince people. But we can change the way the politics happens by bringing in the science of having discussion, learning how to kick people out of their emotional brain and into their neocortex. I mean, I literally applied that science to the fact checks that Jim and I did Mm -hmm. to craft a session, a way of writing out these things that would literally take people out of their emotional brain and force them to use their neocortex brain because I knew that it would stop them from giving that confirmation bias and that immediate reaction and force them to think. And then once they were thinking, now we could have a rational discussion. And this is possible to do in a lot of different places and a lot of different areas. And I think this is what needs to be built into politics if we ever want to see politics get back to any kind of level of rationality.
1: So government by metrics and science is Pete's yes. dream. All right, Jim, you first. Any closing thoughts for our listeners?
2: Yeah, uh, I'll, really quickly, I'll, I'll say that Pete touched on laws. And I would offer that laws are the equivalent of the Big Bang rollout. It would be a lot healthier, I think, for our society if um, anybody putting some sort of a law in place first tried to do something small to see if it had an effect. Um, We don't have anything that says, oh, the law should do this, and if it doesn't, oh, then it should be automatically repealed, some sort of an auto sunset or auto repeal clause. Um, I get that that's inconvenient for anybody who's in power, but you know what? It certainly puts your your vote where your mouth is, if you will. and heather you're you're saying that people are not logical i would offer that we sort of need to embrace the the non-logicness or the irrationality of people it's not going to go away um we need to embrace it Uh, i i do think that politics is absolutely absolutely ripe for disruption and The people that can figure out how to apply this in some sort of a benefit, this lean startup in some sort of a beneficial way, I do believe that somebody out there can change the country. Hey, you know what? Mr. Kushner applied lean startups to politics. Guess what? He changed the country. Um, Somebody else watching this, if you've gotten to this point in the video, good for you for staying along. Please, we need you to help change the country. And one more thing, really quick. I appreciate you saying that there's a conference out there in San Francisco called FailCon. It's not easy to get in front of a, the world and say, hey, you know what, my idea failed. Um, but Pete invited me to do this, and I do believe that Lean Startup is necessary in politics, and I, I want all those entrepreneurs that are out there to understand, figure out if it's right or not fast, fail fast, so you can pivot and get onto your next thing. Don't be embarrassed, fail fast, pivot.
0: Pete, what do you have? Um, I'll take that one step further and say learn fast is really the main goal here. Um, I I wish, if there was anything I could do to change somebody else in the past, I really wish that Eric Ries had called it measure, learn, build loop instead of the build, measure, learn loop, Um, because you don't need to build everything. And that's usually the biggest trouble that I have in working with anybody that I talk with. Um, there's always learning to be had and whether it's politics, whether it's software, you know, whether it's uh, You know any kind of a service business um, There's somebody out actually coming out the laws You know, Jim mentioned like sort of this big bang thing But like laws are basically waterfall. We spend all this time in the beginning to define what the law should be We spent all this time into it And then we go through this implementation phase and designing the implementation phase and then we push it out there And that's the law of the land you know, for decades until somebody comes back around and changes it. You know, it's not working for software. It shouldn't be the way that we run laws either. And, you know, that sort of you know, done, being done by metrics uh, or law by metrics would be fantastic. But even more so, if we got a new law that we think might help, there's other places that have already tried this. And if we spent our time collecting information about where throughout the country these different techniques have been applied and whether or not they worked or didn't work and look at the data, then we can come up with a model and say, well, what if we tweak this thing, would that work? And have like one area of the country or one state do it, you know, or one community do it and do it in a few different places and see how it works. You know, this iterative, small scale model. And then once we find that thing that does work, then roll it out, you know, across the entire country and turn it into an actual law. I mean, that's sort of like the dream for me, but it really comes down back to those fundamentals. Measure first, then learn something from that, and only after you've learned something do you build something.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Pete, and thank you, Jim. So I just wanna say, you know, if you're an entrepreneur out there with an idea that you think can, can change the country, um, support democracy, uh, or if you're a startup who's working on things already, uh, I know there are some great ones out there. There's Higher Ground Labs, there's Resist Spot. Um, anyone else with these ideas, or who wants to become a lean startup practitioner? Um, you know, we invite you to to try lean startup, and and then I want you to come and do a webcast with us. And if along the way you have questions, you have my commitment um, that we can support you in answering those questions. And I want to ask you, Pete and Jim, because I know we're not doing this. For the media hype, we're nerding out on this, you know, because we really enjoy it. And frankly, we really care. So are you committed to answering questions that some of these folks have? Definitely. Yeah, I thought so. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. And thanks to all of our listeners. Have a great day, everybody.
0: Thank you, Heather. Thanks, Heather.